You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. A warning, this episode includes references to violence and suicide. Please take care when listening. And if you're struggling, call Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. For a few years, I worked as a preschool teacher in Flagstaff, Arizona. Rock House Play School was the name of the place. I taught the zany, brilliant, exasperating four-year-olds. For the letter B, we made butter by shaking cream in a jar then spread it on fresh bread and gobbled it up. And for the letter V, we built a big volcano with little Play-Doh towns and bulldozers and princesses and dinosaurs all over it. Then we blew it all up with vinegar and baking soda and red food coloring. The hardest thing about being a teacher was making sure that some kids didn't disappear into my peripheral vision. There was this one little boy. I'll call him Eric. I didn't think much about him at first. Mostly, he made my job harder. He never paid attention in class, wouldn't clean up his toys, didn't make friends, not with the other kids, not with me. He often ended up in timeout. His single mom dropped him off. One morning, I noticed the perfect outline of a handprint blazing on his cheek, a slap mark. I didn't know who hit him, but it scared me. I thought hard about what to do. Slowly, I brought this little boy out from the edges of my class. When he couldn't sit still at story time, instead of time out, I let him sit on my lap. When he needed a partner, I picked him. And I set up a meeting with his mom. She came expecting me to lecture her, but instead, I told her what an amazing kid he was. How artistic, how sensitive. But also how, when he went to public school... People might not recognize his gifts. But I told her, I did. I saw him. And I had learned to appreciate Eric for who he was. But it worried me. How many kids did I not see? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards.
this time for our series, Cowboy Up, we're going to head to Rock Springs, Wyoming, to hear the stories of two young women who, like Eric, both get lost in the shuffle and how their lives take very different courses. Tennessee Watson takes it from here. And a reminder, this episode mentions suicide and sexual violence. In my reporting on struggling kids in Wyoming, one of the biggest obstacles has been a lack of information. Wyoming doesn't collect statewide juvenile justice data, so there's no way to track whether what we're doing is working or not. But knowing that Wyoming has some of the highest incarceration and suicide rates in the nation, I set out to track how kids fall through the cracks. And when I asked around for a place that's particularly harsh for kids, lots of people told me Sweetwater County and the town of Rock Springs. And that's how I met Jennifer Salazar and learned about her daughter, Larissa. Hey, I'm Tennessee. I'm Jennifer. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Sorry it's been so crazy. Oh, no big We met up for the first time at a park on the edge of town. It was a sunny October day, but Jennifer's outlook on Wyoming wasn't so bright because of what she'd seen Larissa go through as a young teen. Even though they say Wyoming's a good place to raise kids, like, there's not much of this and there's not much of that. But yeah, the suicide rate is extremely high, and the way that they handle, like, kids that don't walk a straight line is extremely ridiculous, you know? So I just, uh, it makes me, it makes my heart sink, you know, just thinking about it. When Larissa was little, her biological mom, who's not Jennifer, struggled with substance use and was in and out of jail. Her parents split up when she was around five years old, and her mom pretty much disappeared from Larissa's life. A few years later, her dad met Jennifer, and they got married. Jennifer already had three kids of her own, and Larissa struggled to adjust to life with siblings and this new mother figure. I think she struggled with not having her biological mom in the picture. But we worked through that. They went to family counseling and encouraged Larissa to express her feelings. And ultimately, Jennifer adopted Larissa. She was one of those kids that were, like, non-judgmental. So, like, if you were her gay or straight or if you were fat or skinny or if you didn't have the clothes that other kids had or shoes or whatever she would want to still be your friend and she would want to like (laughs) give her stuff to you she was a kid with a big heart goofy gregarious she loved music and playing soccer and she had a rebellious side too As we saw with Donald Davis and before that with Kansas Charlie, that's a common way kids respond to trauma. And it's usually not violent. I experienced that myself when I was 16 and my mom died of cancer. For me, it was graffiti. For Larissa, it was running around the neighborhood with friends at all hours. One night, she refused to come home and the Salazars called the cops for help because they didn't know what else to do. Officers brought Larissa home But Jennifer was surprised when they gave her a curfew ticket. I went to court with her and they said, well, we're going to have you guys pay the fines. And I was like, we're not going to pay the fines for something that she did. Like, she needs to, like, do community service or something. Jennifer says the judge agreed that if Larissa did some community service and stayed out of trouble, that the curfew ticket would disappear. 
This is called diversion. And it wasn't anything serious. It was just like to kind of like a scare tactic. And Jennifer says it did seem to work. Like she kind of grew up a little bit. She was trying, you know, and then she got sexually assaulted. When Larissa was in eighth grade, she was sleeping over at her close friend's house the day after Christmas. Late at night, the girl's 19-year-old brother came home, and Jennifer says Larissa was the only one still up. And um, the 19-year-old boy wound up dragging her inside of a room and sexually assaulting her. Larissa decided to speak up about the assault, and that turned her closest friends into enemies. The 19-year-old brother was prosecuted and pled guilty to sexual abuse of a minor, and after that, Jennifer says his younger sister started harassing Larissa at school and telling her she wanted it, and getting other kids to badmouth Larissa too. And so I went to the school, and I... Um talk to the counselors and the principals. I mean, we've, we were there several times to try to see if there was anything we could do to stop this, and um, it never stopped. The school declined to comment on how the bullying was handled. Jennifer says the bullying continued for months, and with just a few weeks of school left, the situation reached a tipping point. She was on the bus. She called me crying, and she said, they won't stop, Mom. They just won't stop. They won't quit. They won't stop calling me names. They won't, you know, they won't stop telling everybody on the bus what happened. And and it's so hard for me to keep hearing what happened, you know. I said, "Just, just get off the bus and just come home. And if we have to do something different next year, we will, you know. And uh, she was like, I'm going to physically assault one of them because I'm tired. They were sitting right in back of her. And they were saying, like, I'm going to hit you. Like, I'm going to do this to you. They were pulling her hair. They were, they were making physical contact with her body, you know. And she had had enough. And when the bus stopped, she got up and she punched one of them in their mouth. The case was filed in juvenile court, and Larissa was charged with battery, which carries a maximum sentence of six months. But the judge put her on probation, and Jennifer says at first that seemed like a good thing, like an alternative to being sent to a juvenile facility. But then when she was on probation, they treated her like, okay, you're a criminal, you're on probation. Like, there's no, there's no other help. You know what I'm saying? You're just on probation. You're going to follow the rules. You're going to follow the rules of your house. You're going to follow the rules of probation. You're going to follow the rules at school. And if you don't, you're going to be sent away, you know? Jennifer says Larissa resented the power probation had over her life. 
like how even though she wasn't charged with a drug-related offense, she was required to do routine urine analysis, or UAs, at the juvenile probation office. Jennifer says for a 13-year-old kid who'd just been sexually assaulted, that was just too much. She would come out, she would cry, you know, to me and tell me how demeaning it was and that she was sad that she had to do that and that she didn't want to, like, be, like, exposed in front of somebody. It might sound simple. Don't do drugs and pass the UA. Behave on probation and you won't be sent away. A little healthy fear keeps kids in line, right? But for Larissa, the pressure to comply amped up her emotions. Psychologists say that makes sense because children impacted by trauma have intense reactions to situations that threaten their sense of safety. And experts say that's the trouble with probation. It sets expectations that kids, and especially traumatized kids, just aren't likely to meet. So it's not really an alternative to lockup, but more of an on-ramp. According to documents outlining the terms of Larissa's probation, she couldn't see certain friends. She had to do well in school. She couldn't go to sleepovers. And Josh Rovner from the Sentencing Project says those restrictions don't necessarily help kids. I mean, the best of us as teenagers didn't really like following rules. Then you have a kid who's already in trouble getting picked on, you know, maybe has a uh, mental health challenge or another. That's not a kid who is likely to meet the terms of probation. And Wyoming seems to like to lock those kids up. According to federally collected data, Wyoming locks up kids for probation violations at a rate well above the national average, higher than neighboring states and other states with small populations. Those violations could be as big as stealing a car to as small as literally turning in homework late. In Larissa's case, she violated her probation when she attempted suicide. I was on my way to go to Walmart and I asked her, do you want to go? And she said, no, I'm going to stay home. So I loaded up our little sister, and I was, like, headed out to Walmart. And she comes running out to the driveway, and and I said, oh, you're going to go? So I opened the car door thinking she was just going to jump in and go. And she said, no, Mom, I took some pills. And uh, I took a whole bunch of them, and I think I'm going to die from it. And I, I instantly panicked, and I rushed her to the ER. While Larissa was treated with charcoal to absorb the pills, Jennifer sat with her in the hospital. She looks at me and she says, does people even care that that people get assaulted and that their lives are never the same? And I said, I care. And she said, yeah, but does anybody else? And she said, how do they care when I'm put on probation? And I'm treated like a criminal. And she said, I, she told me, she said, I hate this. I hate probation, you know. And she said, and I hate that I can't just be a normal kid. After the suicide attempt, a judge sent Larissa to a psych hospital for a few weeks. But then, instead of letting her come home, the judge sentenced Larissa to a state juvenile facility for violating her probation. During one of my visits to Jennifer's house, 
She dug up a document juvenile probation had submitted to the judge, listing all Arissa's violations. So she left the home, went to Burger King without permission. As a result, she was restricted from having friends. This is stuff she's told them. She lied about going to the mall. She had a vape pen in her room. And how did her juvenile probation officers know about all this? Jennifer says Larissa had routine visits with her probation officers, and she told them. This is her, like, being honest about things that have happened, you know, in those weeks or whatever to them. Mm -hmm. And also on that list? Um, Took medication that was not prescribed. She took pills that were not her own in an attempt to take her own life. And that's used as a justification to send her to the Wyoming Girls' School. I mean, she no doubt needed help, but the girls' school and the boys' school are the state-run facilities for juvenile delinquents. Kids can only be sent there if a judge determines they've broken the law. It just, I don't know, it seems very harsh to me. But me and my husband just obeyed because you're under a court order and that's what you do. So for eight months, the Salazars made the five-hour trek sometimes across icy, snowy roads, to visit Larissa as often as they could. But the separation was still really hard on Larissa and her family. Because there was a huge connection lost with me and her and my husband and her and her and her siblings, you know. But proponents of the boys and girls schools say sending kids there does more good than harm. So I saw an out-of-home placement in some cases as a very, very beneficial thing to one keep the kids safe keep them alive so you can help them and then two you know get them that help the counseling and the resources that we didn't have locally that's nina james the judge who called the shots on larissa's case in 2019 she stepped down after running the juvenile court in sweetwater county for close to 20 years she doesn't remember the specifics of larissa's case but was willing to talk more generally about her approach to juvenile justice. She says the idea behind these institutions is that it gets kids out of the places where they're getting in trouble. And hope that while they were out of their home, they kind of grew up a little bit. Sometimes you have to have things taken away from you before you understand how much you really like them, you know? But the research is pretty clear that involuntary placements in juvenile facilities don't change teenagers' behavior in the way adults hope they will. So lots of states have moved away from juvenile incarceration, except when absolutely necessary, because that disconnection from family and community leads to such poor outcomes for kids. Higher recidivism, lower high school graduation rates, an increased likelihood for involvement in the adult justice system. Josh Rovner from The Sentencing Project again. I mean, one of the best indicators for youth behavior is who their friends are. And at juvenile facilities, kids are surrounded by other kids who've gotten in trouble with the law, one way or another. And so now, who who are they hanging out with? Like, you've sent them off to crime school. So kids who are there on low-level offenses are now going to have a network of other kids who've been locked up. And so someone gets sent in for drug possession and comes away knowing how to steal cars or knowing how to get higher up the food chain in a drug network. You know, and and just 
deeper and deeper involvement. It's, it's a terrible decision to send kids away. Jennifer says what Larissa learned was more ways to harm herself. She learned things in there that I don't think she would ever learned at home. You know, self-mutilation, um, how to strangle yourself until you can't breathe anymore and you pass out and then you wake up. Like, we didn't do that at home. Studies show juvenile incarceration exacerbates mental health issues and increases the risk of suicide. I mean, if these kids need help... And all they're doing is putting them in the system and saying, here, you're going to be away from your family for nine months to a year. And then, you know, then after that, you're going to be on probation again. Like, how effective is that? You know, I mean, how stressful is that for a child? When Larissa was released from the girls' school and went home to Rock Springs, she was immediately placed on probation again. And all the fear and pressure that led her to attempt suicide was put right back on her. Within four months, she was back at the girls' school. Jennifer says Larissa went to some parties. She spent time with friends on her no-contact list. She drank some alcohol, stuff that her peers were getting away with. I explained to the kids, it's like you're now on the radar. And every little thing you do is going to be scrutinized. And whereas other kids can get it away with it, you won't be able to. That's Kathy Sizemore. She's been a teacher in Rock Springs since the 1980s. She didn't have Larissa as a student, but she knows lots of kids who've been on probation because she spent years teaching juveniles held in the county jail. Once you are painted as a bad kid, that brushstroke follows you. Jennifer says Larissa felt that. And she says, I'm just tired of being judged. I'm tired of, you know, probation judging me. I'm tired of you know, going to court. I'm tired of not having friends. After that second trip to the girls' school, Larissa had been away from her home for close to 16 months. October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June. That's eight months. She was gone. Eight months in 2015 to 16. Eight months in 2016 to 17. And when she came back, she had no... She didn't even have, like, friends or... You know what I mean? And Jennifer says Larissa struggled to see how things would ever get better. I mean, she's like, I get assaulted, and now it's like three years later, and I'm still going through this. She's like, is it going to end, Mom? Is it finally, is one, or one day are they going to say you're doing good, and, and, you get, and you get to be off probation? She's like, is there going to be a day where that happens? She, would, she told me one day, I feel like I have to be perfect, you know? And I told her, you don't have to be perfect. Nobody's perfect, you know? And she say, yeah, but I, I have to be perfect because if I, if I take a wrong step or I choose a wrong friend or I, or I do this or I do that, I'm going to go back to the girls' school, Mom, and I don't want to go back there. The folks who run juvenile probation don't deny it's tough for kids. I think it is hard. I think it's hard once you get in the system to work yourself back out. That is difficult. Karen Kelly directs Sweetwater County Juvenile Probation, and she's worked in the program for over 20 years. One student or juvenile who doesn't have substance abuse issues. Passing those drug tests is a very easy part of their probation. Another kid who has academic problems, the requirement of going to school every day and being on time to your classes and making progress and doing the best you can in school, that sometimes becomes the hard part. And no matter what kids are up against, they're expected to comply with the rules of probation. But Karen says they do refer kids to services like tutoring and counseling, 
to help with underlying issues. And so we can make those referrals, we can help with those interventions, but it really is up to that juvenile on that family to take advantage of that, and some do and some don't. In Larissa's case, she did go to therapy, but Jennifer says it wasn't that helpful. During a visit to her house, she pulls out paperwork from the therapist. She was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. But Jennifer says that put the focus on Larissa's problematic behavior as opposed to helping her heal from the trauma. Because it's not just oppositional defiance disorder. But what about the rest of the stuff? Like, you've just been raped. Like, there's a lot of other stuff going on, you know? That feels like you don't see that reflected in there. No. Mm -mm. Knowing what she knows now, she wishes they'd hired a private lawyer and push back a little more. I mean, we were never financially hurting, but we also didn't have, like, a whole bunch of money to afford a private lawyer, you know. And at this point, things take a turn for the worst. In June 2017, Larissa came back from her second stint at the girls' school. And by October, she hit an all-time low, according to Jennifer. It's almost like she was, like, going into a depression, and, uh, and I feel like she was, and I reached out to probation. I called them on Tuesday, and her probation officer wasn't there, but I talked to the supervisor, and I said, look, there's something going on with her emotionally. She wanted probation to ease off, to let Larissa adjust to school. She wanted probation to call and tell Larissa she was doing a good job. And uh, she says, well, your probation officer's not in right now. I can leave a message. We can try to call and I uh, call her, maybe schedule a meeting. And I said, well, I kind of need this to happen, like, ASAP. Like, I don't, there's something that's not right. The feeling is not right to me. I said, I, I mean, we need to, like, do something for her, you know? And she says, okay, well, we can figure it out. I'll give you a call back. And... Jennifer says she made that call on Tuesday. Two days later, Larissa's dad found her dead in her room. She'd taken her own life. She had just turned 16 years old. That weekend, we were supposed to go and like get her a car and stuff, and she, she took her own life. The two probation agents who worked Larissa's case were Diana Melton and Crystal Britt. I wanted to know if Larissa's suicide made them rethink their work. Diana answers first. Not make me rethink anything, but it is just you feel for that family. I, I won't, you, you never forget any of that. For Crystal, what happened to Larissa felt beyond her control. I think there is a lot of pressure. Um, but life has a lot of pressure. 
And as an adult, there's a lot of pressure. And you have to learn that. Adults don't always handle the pressure all that well either. She was a good kid. And it was... Mm -hmm. It was terrible what happened. But a lot of parents say, well, you're putting a lot of stress on my kid. You're, you're, you're putting a lot of stress on my kid my family. I don't really know how else to say it. And I don't want to sound rude, but we didn't put you here. Yeah. Not that that justifies anything, but my behaviors didn't put you here. Yeah. I just have to follow what the judge tells me to do. That's all I'm doing. So it's hard, and it does make you think, well, should I stop putting so much pressure? Should I back off a little bit? Should I just let this go and see how it plays out? It does. It did for me because I was only here for a year when that happened. And so it was like, well, how do you handle this? What do you do? It's taken me a while to sort through this conversation and how this person who made Larissa feel powerless was telling me she felt powerless too. It reminds me of the parable of the river. You're walking along the bank of a rushing river when you see a person headed downstream who seems to be drowning. You leap into the river and save the person. But then it happens again and again and again. Sometimes when you're saving one person, someone floats by that you can't save. And because you keep diving in to save people, you can't get upstream to figure out how all these people are ending up in the river to begin with. But here's the thing. Some state governments are figuring out why all these kids are in the river. Like Wyoming's neighbor, South Dakota. For decades, both states have the highest juvenile incarceration rates in the nation. But back in 2015, South Dakota's state legislature closed the state's juvenile facilities and reinvested those funds in local programming. So now kids across South Dakota and rural communities have increased access to mental health care and supportive supervision. As a result, South Dakota cut its juvenile incarceration rate in half and saved millions in public funds. But it's not clear to me that Wyoming's lawmakers want to deal with what's happening upstream. We've had some of the highest juvenile incarceration rates in the nation for over two decades, and not much has changed. To be fair, every county in Wyoming takes a slightly different approach to juvenile justice. And some follow the research on what helps kids, but others don't. Experts call this justice by geography. And without statewide juvenile justice data, it's hard to see those disparities or to understand what they mean for kids. But that's a problem Wyoming lawmakers can fix. For now, it feels like luck of the draw whether kids get the support and help they need. And whether that happens or not can vary within the same community. Take Jess, for example. I'm just using her first name to protect her privacy. She had a similar backstory to Larissa. Her mom wasn't in the picture. She was facing bullying at school. She stuck up for herself, and that got her in trouble. But her story takes a turn when she meets a teacher who sees her as a whole person with a backstory, not just a bad kid. That's coming up next on The Modern West.
If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. When I first talked to Jess, she was headed into her senior year of high school. I'm always getting into fights, but I don't get into fights because I think they're fun. She says she gets into fights because she spent a lot of time as a kid feeling vulnerable and like she didn't fit in. I'm kind of in an awkward placement. I, I love art. I'm in speech and debate, and I do soccer. So I don't fit into one specific group of people. Because I'm not just a jock. I'm not just a geek. And I'm not just an art person. I'm all three. And on top of that, I'm Hispanic, but I'm not fluent in Spanish. So the Mexicans look at me like, oh, that's that's a white girl, so we don't like her. But the white kids look at me and they're like, oh, she's Mexican, so we don't like her. adults at school told her to ignore the social stuff, to let the comments roll off her back, and just focus on her studies. But a sense of belonging is key to learning. It helps kids feel safe at school. And if they don't feel safe, then the brain goes into a vigilant mode, not the analytical mode we need for learning. In eighth grade, the bullying got physical, and Jess says she was jumped by two kids, and the response from the school left her feeling like it was all her fault. Not once was I asked, Jess, are you okay? Like, I, I've seen what happened to you, and I just want to make sure everything's okay with you. No one asked me that. No one cared to ask me what being jumped did to me. No one wanted to hear my side of the story. They just seen, oh, girl got beat up. That's okay. Whatever. That was all. Jess felt anxious and unsafe and decided she wasn't going to take it anymore. She started fighting back, and that got her suspended from school. I was so furious that I even considered dropping out of school because I was not being hurt, and I felt like what I had gone through was not enough for someone to be concerned for me, and that's all I wanted. I just wanted someone to look at me and be like, I believe you, Jess. I believe that this happened to you. Let me let me help you. Let me do something to make this better for you. No one told me that. They just told me, like, you're a bad kid. You're suspended. She was living in Rollins at the time, but her dad moved her to Rock Springs, hoping for a fresh start. But by then, Jess had her guard up, and the fights continued. After a couple more suspensions from the regular high school, she transferred to the alternative high school, where she met Rick Baker, a.k.a. Mr. Baker, and things started to change. Hello. Hi, how you doing? Good, how are you doing? Jess says she'd never had a teacher like Mr. Baker, that he'd helped her stay out of trouble. I know Larissa didn't have a mentor like this, 
So I called him up to get his take on Wyoming's attitude towards at-risk kids. I, I don't envy you digging through this stuff. But he really peeled back the curtain for me on how kids who would otherwise fall through the cracks can be pulled back from the brink. And I think Baker has an interesting perspective, in part because he's not from here. He moved here in 2012 with his wife and two kids. We needed to get out of California. It just wasn't good. Not good, because where he lived in California was a stressful place to be. You know, you're you're living in a a gated community with 10-foot fences and cinder block fences. And, you know, you don't even know who your neighbors are. You can't let your kid out to ride their bike in the street. On top of the high cost of living and the crime and the traffic, what really made staying in California hard was a tragedy Baker faced as a teacher. On the fourth day of school, in his 10th year of teaching, Baker had a student drown in his PE class. And it pretty much emotionally and mentally destroyed me for a couple years. He thought leaving California and starting fresh somewhere new might help. On a road trip with his family, he fell in love with Wyoming. And we just kind of were driving through Wyoming and I'm like, you know what, I, I, I want to I move here. I want to live here. Baker's wife found a job in Rock Springs, so the couple and their two kids said goodbye to California and moved to Wyoming. It was those ethics and those beliefs and those things that I... I had read and, you know, totally bought into believing that's how Wyoming was. And I was enamored with that. And that's what drew me here. For lots of folks cutting across Aiedi, Rock Springs is a place to get gas and a crappy cup of coffee. But it's a cool town, quaint and gritty, surrounded by beautiful desert mesas and red rock buttes. Baker liked the feel of the place. And after a few years in Wyoming, he was ready to start teaching full-time again. And he got a gig at the Alternative High School in Rock Springs. But during his first semester back in the classroom, the school was hit with a tragedy. The death of Larissa Salazar. I never actually personally had her in any classes or anything. I just kind of knew her through acquaintance at the school. But one of the first things he had to do as a new teacher in this school was support kids who were really shaken by Larissa's death. And not, not even really truly knowing her or knowing the kids, it was kind of a, it was tough. In consoling kids, he heard bits and pieces of Larissa's backstory. And what he learned surprised him because he had a different impression of what Wyoming was like for struggling kids. You see, shortly after moving to Rock Springs, Baker's son was diagnosed with cancer. And his dream of a fresh start was turned on end getting him better kind of took over everything. Baker's wife had a full-time job, whereas Baker was working part-time. So it made sense for him to be the one to bring their son back and forth to Salt Lake City for pediatric cancer treatment. But despite having to travel several hours to the nearest children's hospital, Baker still felt good about his decision to move to Wyoming. Just people that we didn't even know, you know, coming out of the woodwork, it was, it was just cool. Parents of kids at his daughter's school heard what was happening, and helped her make friends and stay busy. We, we needed for nothing. Does that make sense? We were just em, em, seemed to be embraced much more readily than we would have been had we had been in California when this happened, I think. For them, Wyoming was the close-knit supportive place 
they'd hoped it would be. It's just kind of a, the cowboy ethic. This is kind of what people do. And his son got better. But when Baker went back to teaching and heard Larissa's story and saw similar things happening to other kids, he realized that the outpouring of support for his son wasn't extended to all struggling kids. When I see a kid who is hurting, obviously hurting, and crying out for help a lot of the time by committing crimes or doing other things, why there isn't that same support by donors, I don't know. It makes no sense to me because it's the same thing. I mean, it really is. A kid's in pain, regardless whether it's mental pain or physical pain, you know, there's a reason for what they're doing. And that left Baker wondering how to make sure kids who are mentally hurting get the same help as kids who are physically hurting. What happens if we see behavior as a symptom instead of a shortcoming? It is never just the kid's fault. It is never just the kid. I am a firm believer that any kid, I don't care how bad they've even been, shown the right way and given some support, We'll make it. I, 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 I don't believe that. That's my mantra. That's what I do. That's why I'm doing it. So that's why, that's why I'm teaching. And he believes in his approach because he's seen it work for students like Jess. Yeah, but my car is still cool. How's it going? Good. Nice to meet you. The three of us met up in a park in Rock Springs over the summer almost two years ago. We head over to a table in the shade, and I asked Jess and Baker about their first impressions of each other. We did not like each other. I did not like him. How did you think? No, I I did not like you. I told you you're not going to like me. Yeah, and I I I didn't like him. I I told you that. Yeah, you're like, you're not going to like me. Baker's compassionate, but he's not easy on kids. Those are two different things. But I know I tell him right out, I say, you're you're not probably going to like me. I'm going to be hard on you. And the reason being is because I have expectations. Expectations that a kid can do better. And understanding that there's a reason kids act the way they do. So when did you start to change your mind about Mr. Baker? Um, probably like... Honestly, super fast. Like, su- like super fast. Uh, probably took me like a couple weeks to finally like realize that he's not out to get me. He's out to help me, and that he doesn't want to make my life hard. He just wants to make it to where I know that I'm gonna succeed. But and you said that that like that that was unique that you hadn't really had that oh, kind of interaction with a, a teacher before. Never. Like I never had a teacher that I could go to and say something like flat out so just blunt and that and like literally I could say anything and he'd look at me and be like, "Okay, well, let's figure this out." I never had a teacher that would be like that. Mr. Baker asked questions about what was going on helped her gain some perspective on why she was so quick to fight. 
I'd be like so upset and wanting to talk to someone, like wanting to go to the counselor, wanting to talk to whatever teacher I could. And they would shut me down and be like, no, focus on your work for right now. Like whatever else is happening doesn't matter. But in the moment, that's what matters to me. Like I can't focus on my work if obviously something in my mind is bugging me, is like really hurting me. Well, and see, that's where the empathy piece comes in. And I think that a lot of us in the profession are not trained enough in the social, emotional well-being of our students and how to handle it and there isn't that wow you know mom is an alcoholic dad hasn't been around for 15 years they didn't eat last night whatever is happening for jess it was enduring racism from her peers while adults look the other way and there were times when she felt targeted by adults. And it's sad because when I got my tobacco ticket in, like, here at the regular high school, it was me and three other girls. The three other girls were white. And I'm the one that got the ticket. Now, coincidence? I don't know. Racism can't necessarily, like put it on that. But you guys all got caught together? We all got caught together, and I was the one that got the ticket. In every state, youth of color are involved with the juvenile justice system at higher rates than their white peers, and Wyoming is no exception. According to the most recent data from 2019, Latinx youth were 20% more likely to end up committed to a juvenile facility. The likelihood is even higher for Black and Native American youth. Wyoming doesn't produce its own statistics on racial and ethnic disparities in the juvenile justice system. But Baker says the national stats track with what he's seeing on the ground. The the good old boys network is very strong. (laughs) Very, very strong. I mean, when when you look at who's getting in trouble, how they're getting in trouble, and what's happening when they get in trouble... Baker doesn't see kids from wealthy white families getting sucked into the juvenile justice system at the same rates. If they were, Wyoming might be more concerned about its high juvenile incarceration rates, an idea Baker mentioned on the phone before we met at the park. The major underlying problem in this town is no one wants to admit that there's a problem. And rather than tackle the underlying forces, be they racism, generational poverty, substance use. It is easier and it is faster just throw a kid into some sort of remedial program somewhere else. They're not here. It's, 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 the, it's the let's buy the homeless person a bus ticket to Salt Lake mentality. If we can just get rid of them, put them somewhere else, they're not a problem anymore. And it, it breaks my heart because I see these kids and they're not bad kids. And for Jess, knowing that Baker Saar as a whole person with a backstory and not just a bad kid made all the difference. As soon as I get to school, I go straight to his classroom. That's where I feel comfortable. That's where I feel like I belong. And everyone knows this. Baker's room is a classroom you can go to to get away from everything. Like, that's the classroom where you feel most safe in. Jess felt lucky to end up with Baker as her teacher. Feeling safer at school, Jess was getting in fewer fights and focusing more on her studies. But should feeling supported as a kid be a matter of luck? I really hope not. The day we met up in the park, Jess had one more year of school ahead of her. So I called up Baker this fall 
to ask how things turned out. It was a tough situation, but she, she did it. She pulled it out. She graduated. And it was Baker who handed Jess her diploma. We have a custom here that the kids can choose who they would like to hand, their, hand them their diploma. So it was kind of cool. Out of the 14 graduates, I handed seven. <laughs> that was pretty cool because that was completely unexpected. I, I, I had not expected to do that at all. So what's the barrier to making sure all kids have that kind of support? We can't just rely on schools. Some say Wyoming needs to increase funding for community resources, like after-school programming. And Baker says that might be a hard sell in Wyoming. I'll be more than happy to pull over and help you fix your flat tire. I'm more than happy to do that. But I really don't want to fix your kid. That's kind of the attitude. For Baker, it's not about your kid or my kid or whether it's cancer or depression causing the problem. It's about thinking of kids as our kids, our collective future. These are the kiddos. These are the people that are going to be running the city in, you know, 10, 15 years. These, this is the group of individuals that are going to be making decisions for you when you can't make decisions anymore. Baker says people push back and say, no, no, these bad kids aren't going to be making decisions about my community. And he's like, you're right. They'll end up in prison as adults, and you're going to be paying for it. One way or another, this is going to come back to affect everyone that's saying it's not affecting me. And without a coordinated effort to make sure kids feel supported in their communities, it's often teachers like Baker who carry the burden of keeping kids out of the system. Just when Jess could have slipped into the justice system, she found a mentor. But is that kind of connection something we can guarantee for every kid? Next time on The Modern West, we head up north to Cody, Wyoming, to meet Kate and her grandparents and to follow their fight to fill the cracks in the system. They were ready to send her away. But they said no. Which means that we have to go around and round again because we have rights. That was Tennessee Watson. I'm Melody Edwards. Did you have a teacher that jumped into the river to help you to shore during a hard phase of your childhood? Make a short voice memo of your memories on your phone and send them to us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. That's themodernwestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to include them in a future episode. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our editorial team is Cooper McKim, Noah Greenspan, Charles Fournier, and Sarah Ann Leverett. A special thanks to editor Kelly Prime. Tennessee first reported on Larissa Salazar's story for Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. And we'd like to thank them for allowing us to use that reporting. Our illustrator is Ada Uzenlar. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This season was funded with support from the Wyoming Community Foundation. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are. 
Whether you agree with what you're hearing or not, we're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod. <laughs>